when your gut is healthy, your body is in rhythm, is in alignment. Not only are you able to enjoy your meals, but you are having good, regular, complete, and dare I say it, pleasurable bowel movements. Even if you feel okay, if you are being forced to restrict your diet because there are foods that make you not feel well, your gut is not where it's supposed to be. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. And today on the show, we have a repeat guest, and it's my friend, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, who is a board-certified gastroenterologist and a gut health expert. Every day, he helps patients and members of his plant-fed gut community bounce back from restrictive and overhyped diets and into a whole new way of living and eating that produces the results that they really want permanently. So my man, Dr. B, welcome back to the podcast. Dougie Fresh, it's good to see you, my man. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to chat all things gut health with you. Me too. And your episode was the most downloaded episode of the year in 2020. And I think for good reason, if, if for those who are interested, we went so in depth on your hero's journey and what got you into becoming this gut health master, becoming a GI doctor. And we talked about the gut microbiome. We talked about how to, from a surface level, like heal and optimize gut health. And so I wanted to bring you back on to kind of go round two and double click into a lot of the stuff we talked about in our previous chat. Dude, I did not know. You know what? Maybe I, I, I recall you and I talking a little bit about the, the episode being downloaded quite a bit. I did not realize that it was the most downloaded of 2020. And that is a high honor considering the amazing guests that you routinely have on your podcast. So that's, that's really cool. And I'm excited to be here tonight. And hopefully what we chat about tonight is going to be just as good for everyone. Key takeaway points, things that, you know, like, like little hints and tips that you can take home and apply to your own life. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. And I think people are going to get a lot out of this. And I think a good place for us to start is since we last chatted, I feel like there's been this explosion uh, of talks and on the topic of gut health, the microbiome. You see a lot of people talking about it. And there's some people that they, they, they listen to this stuff or they watch this stuff and they're like, yeah, I guess it's important, but how important really is it? So I guess my question to you, knowing what you know, both personally and professionally, is the hype on gut health, is it justified? I think the hype is real. I think, I think the hype is real. I mean, I think that with anything, you can be hyperbolic right. about anything, right? But, you know, Doug, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently where it's like, I look at the worlds that we live in right now. What, what is going on out there? It is crazy, <laughs> right? Wild. It is crazy. And it's, it's hard to not pay attention to all the crazy things that are happening because the reality is that as human beings, we're attracted to the train wreck. We're attracted to the fist fight. We want to see like what happens, right? Even if we're not, even if we don't like that it's taking place, we still need to look and see it. And so I feel like our attention has been sort of hijacked by, you know, all the major events that are taking place in the world right now. And what is happening behind the scenes that is not necessarily capturing our attention in the same way is that there's a scientific revolution underway. Mm. And this is, this is the, the field where it's taking place. Our understanding of these microbes, the microbiome is transformational science. It's changing the way that we think about biology throughout the entire body. And, you know, there, there certainly are, you know, there certainly are things that I see on the internet that are hyperbolic or that are not scientifically based. We have to allow the science, the evidence to do the talking. We can't just make assumptions or, you know, run with it. But we are in the process of unpacking and understanding this part of the human body that we really didn't know anything about 20 years ago. And I, I think that this is going to lead to opportunities to 
treat people in new ways that we didn't think possible and transform their health. And that, so I'm, I'm super excited about what's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, you, you brought up something really interesting that we are as humans, sometimes addicted to chaos and we go wherever the chaos goes and that becomes energetically charged for us. Like we, we want it cause it's exciting. It's just not, it's more uplifting at times to be in the thick of some, some drama that can occur with the world. But really when we take a step back, we're like, is this really serving us from a physical health level, from a mental health level, from an emotional health level? And short term, we think it is because we're feeling like charged and we feel like we're getting involved in something. But then afterwards we're like, why did I just spend two hours in that? You know, or why did I just spend 45 minutes scrolling and looking at that when I could be taking that time to listen to a podcast like this, when I could be taking that time to say, okay, like, how can I improve my health? How can I improve my relationships? How can I improve my quality of life? The things that you can control, whereas a lot of the other stuff that's going on around us, most of it, we can't control. Right. And I think that's like the big takeaway, right? Oh, totally. I think that's, that's completely true. And, and so, you know, just kind of riffing off of that a few months ago, I heard from a couple of my friends from college, I'm still in good, good contact with my friends from college. And they're like, yo, this show white Lotus, they're like, this show is amazing. And Doug, have you seen this show? White Lotus? I, ha I haven't. Okay. So there are going to be people who are probably like going to come at me on social media and attack me for saying this because the show got great reviews. But the thing about it is that it's a satire and it is hyper cynical and it's quick. It's like five or six episodes, right? HBO. Well, so I'm watching the show and every single episode, I'm like, why am I watching this? Why am I watching this? Like watching this is stressing me out. I don't feel better when I'm done. So why am I subjecting myself? And and the problem is that, you know, my friends from college, they all raved about how great this show was. So I felt compelled to stick with it and keep watching. So I watched five hours of television that made me feel like clinically depressed. And so, and I kind of think that that's, you know, that was just an example of kind of where things feel like they are for a lot of people these days is that we're, we feel like we're being sucked into something that we have to do and it's dragging us down. And how can we disrupt that cycle and break free? And the way that we break free is by, con by being consciously aware that if something doesn't make you feel well and it's sucking you down, then we need to figure out a way to get away from that and move towards things that are uplifting and make us feel good. And I'm really gr glad you brought that up because you can spend all the time in the world, like researching the next best gut health hack or figuring out like the best cardio exercise to do or starting a workout plan. I can go on and on with these examples that move you in a better direction with your health. But if you're not like self-aware and cognizant of your time, like, a lot of that's not going to matter because you're going to be spending the day sometimes on like subconsciously just you know, wasting away hours of the day doing things you shouldn't be doing because it's just based on habit and routine and you're used to that. And that's why it's so important to become aware of like, all right, like how, how, how am I spending my time throughout the day? Because you can start to get on a workout plan and then say you spend four or five hours scrolling on social media and, and watching television where, so now adding in that hour of workout can become pretty stressful, right? Where it, it could become less stressful if say maybe you just spent an hour on television, now you have three extra hours of extra time that that could be spent asleep, playing with your kids, nurturing the relationship with your with your husband or wife, getting out in nature, whatever it is that will help better your health as well. And I think that's an important reminder for us all. That's like, all right, like how am I feeling after I'm doing this activity? And let's just let's just call it what it is, Doug, which is that these things that are that are like the sort of the major technologic breakthroughs of the last 50 years none of them actually bring joy and fulfillment and happiness into our lives right so it's like the time that you spend on social media takes the life out of your soul 
right? And this is coming from a guy who, like many people, would label me an influencer. I mean, I'll just be honest. I don't love spending time on social media. The time that we spend reading the news takes the life out of your soul. The time that you're spending on television on stuff that upsets you takes the life out of your soul. And the problem is that what we do know for a fact, Doug, is that when you feel that way, this is not just a feeling. This is actually leading to physiologic things inside your body. You know, what, what ends up happening is that your pituitary gland releases a hormone, corticotropin releasing hormone, CRH. And this CRH has downstream effects throughout the entire body that are the result of an increase in stress. And that includes having a negative effect on the gut microbiome. Mm. This is the reason why some of the most challenging, I don't even want to call them cases because these are human beings, but some of the, the most difficult patients that I work with in terms of creating solutions and getting them better for their digestive health issue, the most challenging ones are the ones who, where the person has been the victim of trauma or abuse or has a, an addiction history. Right. And these are the most challenging cases because that history, the trauma, the abuse, the addiction, it leaves an imprint on the nervous system. And it is so quick to rev up, release that corticotropin releasing hormone and have those downstream effects that are negative on the gut microbiome that it's really hard to break that cycle without directly going at that root cause problem, the trauma, the abuse, the addiction history. You really have to develop a plan to fix those things. And it, you know, for what it's worth though, Doug, the, the people who have these issues, once I discover that these things are there, which can take several visits because they have to feel comfortable talking to me as the doctor, right? Like you're not gonna talk to some person you don't know on the first visit about this. But once it becomes clear that this is the case, we create a plan to specifically address that. Yes, we will take care of your gut health issues, but we are going to also focus on these specific issues. And once we do that, and that starts to heal, you start to heal those wounds. It's, it's amazing to watch these people start to thrive and grow and heal throughout their entire body. When what you're doing is you're addressing the wounds that exist from the past. Right. And I'm glad you brought this up as well, because people sometimes think that like, oh, if I just fix my stress levels, my gut will be good no matter what. And I can still eat poorly or eat whatever because I'm managing my stress. Or there'll be some people that might say, well, I'm eating like a champion, but not managing their stress. But it's like somebody trying to lose weight and exercising, but eating a whole pizza every day. It doesn't work because it's just going to, they're going to cancel each other out. And I think you, from what I've learned from you and others that I've had on the show, you have to address both when you're trying to heal the, the gut and optimize your brain health kind of going into what you just said about the trauma and people who have experienced like a deep level of emotional pain in their lives. Like, what are some of the symptoms of that? Like when they, when, when you have a patient that comes to see you, you said you don't address it like the first time, but like, what are some of the, the signs that someone's going through that, that forces you to, to take a second look into it? Well, you, so you have to understand that when a person has damaged their gut microbiome, so, so Effectively, the pathway that I'm, I'm proposing here, the way that this works is that heightened level of stress, right? And that, that may be stress that's like baseline, always there as the result of this open wound that's in the subconscious. You're not consciously thinking about it, but it's there in the subconscious, creating this baseline level of stress which leads to the release of this corticotropin releasing hormone from the brain, from the pituitary gland, which has the downstream effect of causing damage and loss of balance within the gut microbiome, which we would call dysbiosis. And with, some people may refer to that as leaky gut, but I, I, I prefer the term dysbiosis. And dys, dysbiosis has been associated with a number of different digestive issues. You know, really what it boils down to, Doug, is that when these gut microbes are out of balance, they're not able to do their job. And if they can't do their job properly, then we can't properly digest. And we have issues with our metabolism and with our immune system, with our hormones, with our mood, 
with our, our memory and our cognition, it, there's these huge downstream effects from injury to the gut that can result from this baseline tonic level of stress. And so in my clinic as a gastroenterologist, what I'll see is I'll see the manifestation of digestive symptoms. So I'll, I'll see, you know, they'll come in to me and they'll say, well, doc, you know, I've been having this new abdominal pain, nausea, gas and bloating. There's been a change in my bowel habits. I'm having diarrhea and constipation and flipping back and forth between the two. You know, maybe there's some acid reflux, right? So they come in talking to me about that. But then as I sit there and I listen to them, I look at their medical history. And what I see is, oh, look. They have a history of anxiety, depression, migraine headaches, allergic issues, perhaps an autoimmune issue like autoimmune thyroid, right? And perhaps hormonal issues like in women, endometriosis or PCOS. And you sit there and you go down the line and you go, every single one of these things comes back to one place. It all started with the gut. But the problem is, the, the problem in this situation, Doug, is that, you know, when we talk about gut health, we overemphasize the role of diet and nutrition. We talk about exercise, we talk about sleep, and then we're so quick and fleeting in the way that we talk about mental health. And we just, we, you know, we toss out things like, go meditate, do some belly breathing, Right. And it's not to say that these things are cheap and not worthy. These are important. They are a part of the solution, right? But we also got to keep it real. And keeping it real is saying that a person who has these serious subconscious wounds that are echoes of the past, but they're carrying into the present, we can't just meditate them away. We can't just belly breathe them away. We're going to have to actually build a treatment plan and get a team and have an approach to go at these things directly and get them healed. So what does that look like? Like what have you seen in your clinic, whether it's with yourself or the help of others that have been effective in, in having this person that comes in and they have dysbiosis and gut issues. And then the root cause of all this is emotional pain and trauma, like what kinds of things are you seeing that's being done that are actually having some efficient and effective results? I, I think that when you are dealing with these types of issues, you don't want to limit the options in terms of how you tackle the problem. You don't want to tie one arm behind your back. Got it. So what that means is that there are no restrictions. You do things that work and you, and you combine them into one. So what I'm saying is that having a trained health professional for therapy, things of the variety of, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy can be extremely helpful, right? right. But C don't just do CBT. Let's look at all of the options, which may include pharmacotherapy, like medications. It may include pharmacotherapy. It may include working with other health professionals and doing things that are outside the box, like things that are more integrative, like it may include doing acupuncture. I believe in yoga. Like there's a meditative element to yoga. I don't think that you would do yoga by itself, but that's part of it. And then I think that the other thing too is, and this is, I think, a very important point that I want to make to everyone who's listening at home. We are social creatures and let's not underestimate the importance of that. Don't do it by yourself. Lean into the people who you love and they love you back. And by getting that community of support, Doug, I'd love to hear from you of what you think about this. But I feel like when the going gets tough, it is part of our nature as humans to perform and to persevere so much better when we have a community that's lifting us up rather than us acting like we're going to go and take it on by ourselves. Amen to that, man. I mean, you think about a sports team and you there's sometimes there's some of these players, they have to play hurt. And when they're playing hurt, they lean on their teammates and the people around them to help elevate them and elevate the team while they're a little hurt so they can try and continue to win the game, right? 
you don't see those players just quit or you don't see that player who's hurt just sit on the bench. You're like, no, I'm counting on my teammates. And I, and the reason I say this is because I think people like sports analogies, but it's a lot like life. Like sometimes you got to play hurt in life. And sometimes in life, you're not always going to feel like a 10 out of 10. That's normal. Like most of us are going to go through life very frequently and we're going to feel like a four. We're going to feel like a six. We're going to feel like a three, maybe, or a five. But if we're around people that are averaging being like a seven or eight or nine out of 10 most of the time because of how they take care of themselves, how they treat us, how they respect people, then they're going to help elevate us when we're feeling that three, that five, that four versus if you're spending time with people that are threes out of 10, that are four out of 10, they're constantly being pessimistic. They're blaming people for the problems or gossiping. They're negative. They're not taking care of themselves then you're going to believe that that's normal. And you're so you're going to start to accept that as, as reality instead of looking at the other side of the equation of when you can spend time with other people that are helping to elevate you, then your chances of getting better are much greater. And I, and I love that you yeah. brought that up. And and I think this is not this is not just like uh hey, you know, Dr. B and Doug got some ideas about how humans work and and how we function. This is this is scientifically validated stuff. And some of the science behind this is quite fascinating. So just to bring forward a few things real quick, you know, they, they've shown in m- many different studies at this point that people who feel more socially connected, they live longer. I mean, th- this is actually like you want longevity. This is just as important as your nutrition, your diet is to be socially connected to other human beings. And we were talking a moment ago about CRH and stress hormones. And they did this interesting study, Doug, where they looked at elementary school age children, right? And like, I'm of the belief that one of the things that we need in life, and one of the reasons why I think that love is so important and human connection is so important, is that it allows us to feel safe. It allows us to feel comfort, knowing that we're not alone, that that there are others who will step up and help us if we need it. They did this study with elementary school children where they measured stress hormone responses in these kids when there was a stressful event at school. And what was really interesting, Doug, is that the stress hormones were heightened if the person that the child identified as their best friend was not present in school on that day. So when your best friend's not around, you don't handle your stress well. Right. Right. And they showed it with kids. And then one last thing. So I talked, we, we already spoke before about this connection of stress, release of hormones, CRH affects gut microbiome. And then there's downstream effects throughout the entire body as a result of that. They've, they've shown in studies that we share our microbiome with people that we cohabitate with. And that can have beneficial effects to, for us, but they took it one step further. It's not just, Hey, if you cohabitate and share a living space with another human being that you will necessarily get the benefits of shared microbes. They looked at spouses and it's kind of interesting when people had a loving, healthy relationship with their spouse, they had a healthier gut microbiome. And when they had an unhealthy, disconnected relationship from their spouse, even though they were cohabitating together, the the gut microbiome had the appearance almost like they were living in social isolation by themselves. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, 
gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. So do you think that's a result of just being less stressed overall if they're in a healthier dynamic with their partner versus if they're in an unhealthy relationship, what it does to the body on a physiological level with the stress response? Yeah, I think it is. I think, I think that when we feel, when we feel that we are loved, when we feel that we are supported, then it allows us to be at ease, to be the best version of ourselves, to have the comfort of knowing that there are others who will support us, protect us, all those different things. I mean, I think these are things that are hardwired into us because 99.99% of human history predates civilization. We were out in the wild, you know, we were on the wild with the other animals. And so this is what we needed actually to survive. Right. And if you had your tribe, you were far more likely to survive. And if you were walking alone by yourself out in the wild, you didn't have that protection. And it's, you know, I mean, it's, you can imagine what life was like without that kind of support back during those times. And I'm really glad that we're talking about this because as a trainer, I see these indirect things, these, these things that can indirectly inhibit people from getting results, right? Stress, sleep, you know, lack of social connection with, with other people. And they just kind of, they'll, they'll work out and maybe they'll eat well, but that's like their life. And that becomes like a religion of some sorts. I, and I actually have, have, played, have been that for part of my life and I was miserable. And they're like, why aren't I getting results? Why aren't I getting results? Well, it's like, well, you're only sleeping like three or four hours a night. You're stressed out of your mind. You have no, nothing else outside of your fitness. So inside, I would imagine just based on my own personal experience that it's, it's affecting you physically. And that's why I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up just from a medical stance of, okay, like we can talk all day about the top foods, the top things to do to heal your gut, which we will, and to optimize your gut health. But if you're not addressing the other 50% of this equation, which is your stress and which is your emotional health, which is your brain health, like none of that's going to matter. Right. This brings up for me the general idea that you can look great on the outside. You can, you can smile your face off out in public, but what's really happening on the inside? That's the question. And we want you not just looking good. We want you not just putting on a face. We want you feeling good. And that is something that you can't fake or convince yourself of. It has to be real. And so I, I agree with you, Doug, that I think that this, these things are much more complicated than just going in the gym and fitting your macros. Right, right. And trust me, I wish it were that simple. Because there's been times in my life, speaking from my own experience, where I've eaten really, really well. And I've my exercise and my weight training and my cardio has been on point. But I still have been miserable and stressed and low energy. And it comes down to a lot of these other things that I didn't address properly, whether it was childhood trauma, whether it was the relationship with my parents, maybe it was how I spoke to myself on a personal level. And once I started to address those, I felt that I actually didn't have to, I still eat well, but I didn't have to eat as perfect or exercise nearly as much. I mean, I was working out six days a week. Now I'll, I'll do it, you know, four to five good sessions a week, maybe like a nice like walk or run on the sixth day. But it's because I've addressed the other areas of my life that now I don't have to work as hard on the physical side of things. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I, you know, I myself have noticed that. And when I was in my early 30s, and I, and I do talk about this in my book, when I was in my early 30s, I was smashing workouts six days a week, you know, and I was doing about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour of weights. And then I would jump on the treadmill for a five to 10K, or if it was the summertime, I would jump in the pool and do 50 to 100 laps. I was doing that for like literally six times a week. And my diet was horrible. And I could build muscle mass and I could run fast and run far, 
but I couldn't get myself in the physical shape and I didn't feel good. I didn't look good. Basically, I didn't love myself. And it's kind of interesting to look at the counterpoint because here I'm 41 and I work out two times a week. So every Tuesday and Thursday, I meet with my trainer, Eli, and I show up at five and he yells at me. He's very militant. And that goes on for about 30 minutes. So I'm doing 30 minutes twice a week of, of weight training. My diet is good, but I, I think you bring up a good point, Doug, which is that let's not underestimate the importance of loving yourself, of feeling loved by your family, of having the things in your life that need to be situated and oriented, getting those things situated and oriented. For me, a lot of that has fallen into place. And it's, it's been very interesting because I feel like I'm thriving at a point in my life where other people, they, they feel like it's the opposite. They feel like life is getting away from them. I feel like life is just really started. Right, right. Yeah, I think when you can address a lot of these underlying issues, it allows the body to, to work more efficiently because you're not having to, to make up for the fact, like on the physical level, you're not having to make up for the fact that the body is using all this energy and it's being taxed emotionally and mentally and spiritually even because of some stuff you haven't worked on that's continuing to impact you on a biological and physiological level. And this isn't, and this isn't some it's like just woo woo or, you know, Pollyanna approach that we're talking about here. I think we're just both speaking from personal experience. Like, listen, if you want to have all day, I can tell you that I was the person, like I just said, that ate super clean, like 95% of the time, hit the gym nearly every day, like looked like a machine. Like there's pictures of me out there of when I had like, I don't know, like all of my abs popping out. But I also, there's, there's posts that have been made of mine with that same picture about how miserable I was on the inside. Mm. And this is a real thing because there's a lot of people that they think that's happiness is getting to this point physically where you can say, look at me, especially if you're somebody like myself who was fat growing up where you want to like milk this new image as long as you possibly can and get validation as much as you, as long as you, for as long as you can. But that eventually starts wearing thin and it ends up prolonging the inevitable of having to really look yourself in the mirror and saying, okay, like, why is this such a high for me? Why is this what I'm chasing to be happy? Like, and not to be confused with the fact that you should take care of yourself and you do want to like look and feel good physically because I think generally speaking, for the most part, if you look good, there's a good chance that inside you're probably healthy too versus if you're somebody who's substantially overweight, odds are there might be some stuff going on inside. Not, and it's not to say that you can't be healthy on the inside and outside if you're overweight. But I would say if you were to run some research and some numbers, I would say that the better you take care of yourself physically, the better you are emotionally and mentally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that's I think that's completely true. Right. So with all this said, let's I want to get into the kind of the weeds a little bit because something that I think people struggle with, or maybe and maybe there's somebody that 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 they're not at the age where they're getting a regular colonoscopy and they really have no idea to know like how far off or how bad their gut health is like how how does somebody know like what are some of the the triggers or what are some of the symptoms that go off that somebody should be aware of if they're having some gut health issues that need to be addressed well i think it's very simple you so let me save money for everyone who's listening here tonight you don't need a test to tell you the state of your gut health. You don't need to pay for expensive microbiome tests or for blood food sensitivity tests or things like this. It's, it's quite simple. When your gut is in a good place, okay, you can eat whatever the heck you want within reason, of course, but you can eat whatever the heck you want without restriction. Enjoy it and not feel like crab afterwards. When your gut is healthy, your body is in rhythm, is in alignment. Not only are you able to enjoy your meals, but you are having good, regular, complete, and dare I say it, pleasurable bowel movements. <laughs> Seriously, man. 
No, Seriously, it's it. so when a person is not in a good place from a gut health perspective, there are restrictions on their diet. Even if you feel okay, if you are being forced to restrict your diet because there are foods that make you not feel well, your gut is not where it's supposed to be. If you eat food or if just day-to-day -day activities are causing you to have digestive symptoms, gas, bloating, abdominal pain, nausea, acid reflux, heartburn, changing your bowel habits, diarrhea, constipation, anything like that, your gut is not where it needs to be. If your bowel movements are a chore, if they are something that are unpredictable, if they are something that leave you not feeling well, your gut is not where it needs to be. So it's, it's, it's not that complicated. Like I don't care what the gut microbiome test says. If you are eating a diet without restriction and you are having good, regular, complete evacuations, bowel movements, if you're able to do that, you're in a good spot. But if, if this is disrupted and your body is not, is out of alignment, then this is, this is your body. This is your gut microbiome telling you, whoa, we're not ready to handle what you're asking us to handle for you. And something is wrong. So with that said, would you say based on research and what you know, like, like how many people give or take are having gut issues that need to be addressed? Massive, mm. massive percentage. I, 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 I think that this all falls on a spectrum to some degree, Doug. This is not, these are not yes or no type things. These are shades of gray in a lot of ways. But statistically speaking, about one in five Americans have irritable bowel syndrome. About one in five Americans have acid reflux. You know, you can go down the line and all these different health conditions that are related to gut health. When you start lining this all up, you start to realize very quickly that we have an epidemic of an epidemic of injury to our gut, to our, you know, to our gut microbes. And that this is, this is really the root cause of many of the health issues that exist in the United States today. Right. Right. Okay. And, you know, going off of that, I know you just did a webinar where you kind of coached people on this very subject of how to take somebody who's having these everyday digestive issues, whether it's indigestion acid reflux and things like that and like how to like reverse that so let's just say that i'm somebody who's experiencing that and my bowel movements are super inconsistent i'm waking up and i'm like having these random stomach pains that i don't know where they're coming from like where do i go from here let me say this the things that i'm about to talk about are things that you will be hearing me discuss in more detail in the future. I'll just leave it at that. I'm just going to tease with that. You'll be hearing more from me on this over the course of time. But the first step in this process, Doug, is we have to understand the root of the problem. So if you don't know what the problem actually is, how can we properly treat it? You know, when a patient comes to my clinic, typically, unless it's like very obvious from the very beginning, oh, okay, the diagnosis is this. Typically, I have to start with a diagnostic process to understand what it is that I'm actually treating. And many of these people, they will come to me and they'll say, Dr. B, you're known for your diet, dietary advice. I've read your book. It's wonderful. I want you to tell me what to eat. And I say to them, you'll have to wait. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you today because first things first, I need to know what I'm treating. Otherwise, I'm just throwing stuff up against the wall. There's a few things that I want everyone who's listening here today to know about. I would call these the, the big three of food sensitivity. Now, before I dig into this, I, I want to say that these are not the three most common causes of food intolerances. These are the three that I want to find if they're there because I can fix them. I can fix them quick. All right. But before I dig into the big three of food sensitivity, let me just say the most common cause of food intolerance is going to be your old bowel syndrome. Right. And irritable bowel syndrome, we can talk in a moment if you want to, Doug, about how we approach correcting and fixing that specific issue. And for those who are wondering, irritable bowel syndrome is a diagnosis based upon a pattern of symptoms. The pattern is abdominal pain of some variety. You have to have abdominal pain. And that pain is associated with a change in your bowel habits, whether it's diarrhea, constipation, or both. And when you poop, the pain improves. That's your old bowel syndrome. Okay. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. You got to make sure there's not something else going on. 
But before I can diagnose zero bowel syndrome, I first need to make sure that there's not these other things. And so the big three of food sensitivity are constipation, celiac disease, and the gallbladder. And in my patients where it's appropriate, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about, could this patient have this diagnosis? Because if they do, I'm going to make a plan to fix that. So constipation, what am I looking for? The number one symptom of constipation is gas and bloating. So virtually 100% of my patients who have constipation, they come in and one of their symptoms will be gas and bloating. In addition to that, they may have abdominal pain, oftentimes nausea, not to the point of actually vomiting, but more like a queasiness. They lose their appetite. They get full very quickly when they eat. They may get acid reflux, and most of them have fatigue. They feel very tired. So this is sort of the pattern of symptoms. And one of the things that I want everyone at home to know, constipation is not a diagnosis based upon how often you poop. Like as a GI doctor, that's actually not the important part from my perspective. All right. You could poop every day and be constipated. You could poop five times a day and be constipated. Constipation is... Constipation is the manifestation of symptoms that occur as the result of inadequate evacuation. So if you're not completely emptying your colon, then you are backing up. And if that backing up causes symptoms, you are constipated. So Doug, one of the main questions that I will ask my patients that really opens this up is I will ask them, do you ever feel like you have incomplete bowel movement? And they go, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm like, okay, interesting. And then I'll follow it up with this question. So if you have a great bowel movement, all right, if you have a fantastic, like you just feel like you had the best bowel movement ever, how do you feel? And they go, oh man, those are the best days. I have no gas and bloating. I can tolerate whatever I want to eat. No nausea. I feel wonderful. That person is constipated. Constipation causes food intolerances. If you fix the constipation and you get them into a rhythm, the food intolerances go away. They feel great. Diagnosis number two, celiac disease. It affects about 1% of Americans. Blood testing is not adequate. There's these antibody tests like tissue transglutaminase. Many doctors will run an antibody test. It's not adequate. Most of the patients that I diagnose with celiac disease have negative blood tests. If you want to know if you have celiac disease, you have to do an upper endoscopy. And before that endoscopy, you have to be consuming gluten for two weeks. Uh, now, you could do a genetic test. And if the genetic test says that you don't have the gene for celiac, then that would prove that you don't have it. But the problem is that the genetic test is positive for the gene in about one in three people. It's very common. So there's a two in three chance that you would rule out celiac disease in that case. But there's a one in three chance that it's still an option. If that's the case, then you have to do the endoscopy. Right. All right. If a person has celiac disease, I put them on a gluten-free diet, boom, done, good to go. And then the third thing is the gallbladder. So I just want to share with people some of the symptoms that I hear from people who have a gallbladder issue. Now, classically, it's pain in the right upper quadrant, radiating to their back, worse after meals. That's what the medical textbooks say. That's actually the minority of patients. The gallbladder can be anything involving the upper abdomen. So it could be nausea, could be burning in the chest. It could be pain in the upper abdomen in multiple different locations. Those can all be the gallbladder. One of the classic things that I'll look for is that the pain wakes them up in the middle of the night. So if you sleep and then boom, you wake up with pain, that many times is the gallbladder. Doug, people that have irritable bowel syndrome, they could have the most nasty case of irritable bowel syndrome, meaning that it's very severe, causes a lot of symptoms, a lot of disruption in their life. But when they go to sleep, they actually get to sleep and their symptoms go away. Whereas the gallbladder does not care what time of night. It doesn't care if it's three in the morning. The gallbladder does not care if you got a big day planned tomorrow. The gallbladder is going to act when it wants to act and it can cause trouble any time of day. So... Again, the big three of food sensitivity, constipation, celiac disease, and the gallbladder. I want to know if those three things are there because the first thing we got to do, Doug, is we got to figure out what the problem is, create a plan to address it. If it's one of those three things, boom, let's figure out how we're going to fix this issue. If it's not one of those three things, then 
you, you know, you of course want to hear what the history is, think about other possibilities. But if we end up with a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, then you're going to work through a process of healing the gut microbiome because that's where the problem exists. So would you say at the center of all three of those problems in some way is the gut microbiome that's playing into to some of those issues? We know for a fact that people who are constipated, there is alteration and damage to the gut microbiome. There's no question about that. In celiac disease, we've been wondering why it is that you can have the gene for celiac. Imagine that I have the gene for celiac. Okay. What are the chances that during my lifetime, I will actually be diagnosed with celiac disease? The answer is 3%. Right. So 97% of the people who have the gene, they never manifest celiac. So we were wondering why is that? And what is it that figured that determines the activation of the gene? Mm. And the answer to that question appears to be damage to the gut microbiome. And with regard to the gallbladder, it's not a very well studied area in terms of making clear to us what exactly is going on when a person has gallbladder issues and what's at the root of the problem. By the way, if there's health professionals at home that are listening to me talk about this, I'm, I'm referring to motility issues with the gallbladder, the way that it squeezes, which we call biliary dyskinesia. We don't really know where that comes from, but I fully expect that if we were to do a research study looking at people with gallbladder issues and looking at their gut microbiome, it would be my expectation that you would find that there is a disturbance of the gut microbiome in that setting. And, and one thing I wanted to touch on just briefly is you, you touched on celiac disease and gluten, you know, has been a big buzzword, you know, over the last decade or so. And my guess is this, is that there's a lot of people that say they are gluten intolerant or have a gluten sensitivity or allergy, but really they just have a damaged gut microbiome. Is that accurate? Yeah, I touched on this in my book. And as I was writing my book, Fiber Fueled, when I came to the topic of gluten, I, I, I knew that there's controversy surrounding this topic. And so my position was, look, whatever I write, let it be backed up by science, by evidence, so that when people who feel otherwise attack me, I could say, here's the paper, go read it. And when it comes to this issue that you're describing, Doug, they did an interesting study where they took a group of people who, first of all, they proved that they don't have celiac disease. And these were people who thought that they were gluten intolerant, right? Like they get symptoms from gluten and they gave them three weeks worth of breakfast bars. One week was a placebo. One week was a bar that contained a very high concentration of gluten. And one was a bar that contained something called fructans. Fructans are complex carbohydrates that you will find in wheat. And by the way, fructans are actually really, really good for the gut microbiome. They're prebiotic, the microbes love them, but they're also a FODMAP, which means that in some people they can cause gas and bloating. So they took home these three weeks worth of breakfast bars and they recorded their symptoms on a daily basis. How do they feel? Of course, we're gonna compare it to the placebo. That's our point of comparison. And what they found is that when these people were eating the gluten-containing bar, Doug, they had less symptoms with the gluten bar than they did with a placebo. Wow. The placebo was triggering more symptoms than the gluten bar. Why? Because the placebo wasn't triggering symptoms in the first place, but neither was the gluten. That's the point. But on the flip side, when they con consumed the fructan containing bar, these people were actually triggered. The symptoms were off the charts. Why? because wheat is not just gluten. So when we attribute symptoms to wheat and we always point the finger, oh, this is gluten, this is gluten, this is gluten, that's not necessarily true. And in this particular case, what we're talking about, Doug, is we're talking about people who have underlying digestive issues, damage to their gut microbiome. They are sensitive to wheat. And the sensitivity is not to gluten, the sensitivity is to fructans. We shouldn't be calling it a gluten intolerance we should be calling it a fructan intolerance. Mm. That's super interesting. And I'm glad that we, we discussed this because there's a lot of people that self-diagnose themselves as being gluten intolerant or 
allergic to, to gluten or a variety of other foods for that matter. But in all, in all reality, it could be in, in many cases, a damaged gut microbiome or other issues that they're not looking at that go into that. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I just I just wanted to say that the the reason that I choose to take up this fight, right? Because I can assure you, it would be easier to not deal with the trolls who are you know zealots when it comes to gluten. But the the reason that I choose to take up this fight is that it is important for people to understand how how this works. And they did a clinical research study where they took a group of people who did not have celiac disease and were on a gluten free diet. And what they found is that this group of people actually had an increased risk of heart disease, having a heart attack. That's our number one killer in the United States. That's the number one cause of death. Wow. And we should not be making dietary choices that increase our risk of our top killers. We should be running towards the dietary choices that reduce our risks. And the issue here to unpack this just briefly, Doug, is that wheat is not categorically bad. Gluten is not categorically bad. If you have celiac disease, which is 1%, then yes, you cannot consume gluten ever in your entire life. And I would tell you that to your face. But wheat is not categorically bad. It is a whole grain. And whole grains reduce our risk of heart disease. Study after study after study has shown us this. So if you're going to choose to be gluten-free for whatever reason, I just want to say, you can be healthy and be gluten-free. That's cool. You can do that. But if you're going to do that, make sure that you're getting an adequate amount of gluten-free whole grains in your diet and that does require a concerted effort. And you don't want to be one of the people who increases your risk of heart disease because you are cutting out the wheat, but then you're not replacing it with other whole grains. Yeah, well said. And I guess before we end our convo, I definitely want to try and leave the listeners with a few nuggets that they can implement, you know, maybe now if there's somebody who, because typically what happens if they're experiencing indigestion, they'll take some Pepto-Bismol or they might take what Exertec or they might take, if they're having gas issues or bloating, they'll take stuff for that. And I can go on and on with examples where people are just taking medication to put a Band-Aid on these problems that are more long-term. Right. So, so with that said, like what has been the advice that you provided most people nowadays if you're saying, okay, like here's some things you can do right now, some small wins to help them heal the indigestion or the constipation or like things that are just across the board going to be helpful? Yeah. So uh, a couple of things like, again, you know, at the end of the day, you really want to know what you are treating and then you want to be targeted and precise in the choices that you make to really get at that specific issue. So what I'm about to say is just general general health advice and, and I think widely applicable. But of course, if a person was my patient, I might, you know, tweak this a little bit and make it more personal for them. Nonetheless, so I, I think that rhythm is one of the most underrated things. All right, we need our bowels to be in a rhythm. And I would make an analogy to the heart. We could take a great athlete. All right, we could take a, a marathon runner. And if I flip them into an abnormal heart rhythm, I could make it so that person can't even walk up a flight of stairs like that. It doesn't matter how, how athletic they are. If the heart is out of rhythm, they can't function properly. So what do you think happens when the gut is out of rhythm? And we know the gut is out of rhythm when you're not having good, regular, complete evacuations. So I want to help people maintain that rhythm. And one of the ways, if you find that you're having incomplete evacuations and bad bowel movements, perhaps backing up and a little constipated, one of the things that can potentially help is magnesium. Magnesium taken at bedtime is good for sleep, good for mood, good for headaches, good for muscle cramps, and by the way, fantastic for bowel movements. There are many different forms of magnesium. If you need something just for sleep and for mood, but not for your bowel movements, magnesium glycinate is fantastic. But if you want a good bowel movement, magnesium oxide, magnesium citrate, magnesium sulfate, those are some of the choices. Of course, talk to your doctor about this. That's good for constipation. 
then whether you have constipation or you have diarrhea, we do want to target and support the gut microbiome. I'm a huge fan of prebiotics for that. So prebiotic supplements, examples would be acacia powder or wheat dextrin, psyllium husk. These are examples of prebiotic fiber supplements that can be taken on a routine basis. I take them myself, even though I eat a plant-based diet. Beyond the prebiotics, there may be a role for probiotics. The key here with the probiotics is this. It's not the probiotics don't work. It's that we have to find the probiotic that works for you. Right. And the way that we do this is through experimentation, through trial and error. It doesn't matter what the reputation of the probiotic is. It doesn't matter if there's good clinical research to say that it works. The question is, does it work for you? So you should have a specific thing that you're trying to address, whether it's gas, bloating, abdominal pain, nausea, whatever it may be. And when you introduce the probiotic, you take it for a month and you see if your symptom actually improves. And if it does, then you can make a decision whether or not you want to continue. But if it doesn't, move on. Yeah. All right. So those are some of the basic things. And then, you know, Doug, of course, I'm a big believer in a dietary approach that is plant predominant, like as plant predominant as you feel comfortable. You know, I, I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's really important that the choices that you make be choices that you're actually going to do. So I'm not here to say that there's only one way to eat. I'm here to say, do an intake on your personal diet. If you are 10% plant-based, that's better than I was 10 years ago. I was like 5% plant-based. And if I can take you from 10% plant-based to 30%, that's a win. And I'm going to plant the flag of progress and celebrate. But you're going to feel better. And I think that's going to motivate you to keep going to 50 to 70 and higher. And, you know, at the end of the day, what I want people is I want people moving down this path towards fueling their gut fueling their gut microbes with fiber from a diverse, abundant array of plants, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. We want diversity. We want as many different varieties as possible. And when you do this, when you eat as many different varieties of plants as possible, and you make this sort of a central theme to your diet, you are supporting your, your gut microbiome and you will feel the difference. And I'm going to tell everyone right now, the first thing you're going to notice, first thing, is more energy. And don't tell me that that doesn't matter to you. Don't tell me that that's not intel from your body in terms of the state of affairs. When you have more energy, that's your body telling you that it's thriving and that the engine is working. And I think that's an amazing place for us to, to leave off. And I, it was funny, I was going to ask you for like an elevator pitch to convince people to work on their gut health. And I think you planted the seed a few times during this episode, and then you finished it off with one that was more in depth. And, and Dr. B, you provided so much value in our conversation. And we talked a lot about mental health and emotional health and stress and the role that plays in gut health. And we talked about the importance of connection. We talked about really addressing like the non-food stuff when it comes to healing the gut and why that's so important. And I think people are going to get a lot out of this. And including the fact that you also helped, gave people some pointers on what to look for with different gut issues and how to heal them. And, and obviously there's things that we all know that are going to damage the gut, which is not spending time with people, not sleeping well, not exercising, eating processed foods, drinking excess amounts of alcohol, sugar, all the stuff that we already know. But again, it, like you said, it comes down to the choices and our habits. And are we actually willing to make the sacrifice and do the things that we know are beneficial for, for our health. So I wanted to thank you for your time. Doug, it's always a pleasure, my man, to hang out, have these conversations. We could talk all day. I feel like, <laughs> no. you know, this is like two, two buddies just hanging out and having a good conversation. And I hope that, that for the people who are at home, that that brings value for them. I really do. Yeah. Cool. I think it definitely will. And you're going to want to connect with, with Dr. B if you haven't already, he is on Instagram at the gut health MD give him a follow. And then what I also encourage you to do is to share a takeaway 
Well, there was something that we said at the beginning of our conversation when we talked about being aware and cognizant of how we're spending our time or if we talked about stress or connection, mental health, or whether it was part of what Dr. B was sharing with certain gut issues and how to heal from that, whatever it was, tag him, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.